Well, let's pray. Give me the honor to pray for you. Lord, we just thank you for this session coming up. Father, I give you praise and glory. I've already heard so many testimonies of what you've done in two days. We look forward to that saturation that Pastor Bill's talking about, even going deeper to the roots, expanding the capacity of those here to receive and to believe and to be fruitful. We thank you for the anointing on Pastor Sidney. I so admire what you're doing in him and through him. Now, Lord, bless the people. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, good afternoon. We're going to continue looking at what we had started. And um, in some sense, I guess you could say that this series has been a hell of a series. I was going to uh, I was going to say that you know the very first time I got up and began to speak on this and the Lord wouldn't let me because He wanted us to take seriously the reality of hell and that people are there and it really isn't a joking matter and that you know we have I've been saying this each time but there's two people two kinds of people in the earth and there's those that we're going to be with in glory and then there's those that are going to be in hell. And um, I'm confident that I'm talking to a group of people that are um, sure of your destiny, are sure that you're going to heaven, are sure that you know hell is not something that you fear because you know how, where and how you stand before your Father. And so what we've been, been presenting is not to scare anyone into heaven, is not to get you to live a righteous or holy life because you're afraid of hellfire, but rather is so that us as the believer would pick up the mantle that Jesus left for us to walk into baptizing and teaching and discipling all nations. And if we hold the reality, something that the Lord had said to me, He said that this new generation, this younger generation needs to recognize the reality of a real heaven and a real hell. You know, I grew up in a church where there was a lot of hellfire and brimstone sermons, you know, and they, they tried their best to scare us into heaven. And in some regards, I guess that worked, but I remember when I wasn't living right with the Lord, I would, I would as a teenager, before I'd go to bed every night, I would go take one more drink of water before I'd get in bed just in case I died in the night and that was the last water I was getting. Because see, I remembered that story in Luke, Luke 16 about the rich man and, and in hell and he wanted a, a drop of water. And I lived with that fear. I wasn't so motivated to live for the Lord, but I, I recognized the awfulness of eternity without God as well. And so for you and I here, I want, to, I want this, these three sermons uh, where we've looked at hell to really motivate us to share what we have. Remember, the Gospel is not a formula. It's, about, it's, it's personal. It's about relationship. It's, it's not an organization. It's a real living thing between you and the Lord. And when you evangelize, when you tell someone about the goodness of God, we're not just simply presenting them with a formula that's, that's you know, fire insurance. 
but we're presenting them with relationship. With a real and living God. And so let's hold that as um, our why. God so loved the world, right? That He was moved to give that which was most precious to Him. And certainly, if the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, like Scripture says it is, then that means we're going to have a certain uh, DNA of His in us, a certain likeness, a certain character of Him, the love of God, that's going to motivate us to bring people into the kingdom of light. And so that we can carry on and be the image bearer of the Lord in the earth. If you would, go over with me to Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to take the time to go read Luke 16 again. You guys are familiar with the story about the rich man and Lazarus, how he went to hell. We looked at 11 different things that we noticed about hell that we could learn from that passage. And then we looked at all the words that Jesus said about, well, not all of them. We looked at a number of, of different times where Jesus spoke about hell. And what did he say about it? And he, he, you know, established that it's a fiery place. He established that it's a place of torment. He established that there's a choking smoke and darkness and blackness there. That it's a pit. He established all of these things. They're sulfur, so the smell must be horrible. And so he's the one who told us about these things. And obviously in and in with all of that is separation from the Lord. Separation from His presence. Separation from the Father. And so what could be more awful than that? Right? We hear stories of people that uh, burned in car accidents or in house fires and even people that were trapped in the vehicles and, you know, they screamed and it was horrible and people were trying to rescue them and the skin's dripping off their face and arms and unsuccessful and, and, and the lady died. And, um, and we think, you know, that's horrible and awful. And, and then we take a small measure of comfort in that, well, it was over fairly quickly. But for those that go to hell, it's not over quickly. In fact, Jesus established again and again and again, just like we have everlasting life with Him, there's also everlasting destruction apart from Him. So it just doesn't quit. It's not brief. It continues. So here in Acts chapter 2, we're going to move into the good news. And the good news is, is all of us, no, that's not. The bad news is, all of us deserve hell. All of us were by default born into this fallen world and all of us deserve to go to hell. No matter the degree of sin that you did or did not commit, all of us, we deserve to be there. And the reason we don't have to be there is because somebody else said, I'll go for them. And just to put it in a nutshell, and we're going to read about it, Jesus went to hell for you and I. And we often talk about Jesus at the cross, and we talk about Jesus being crucified. And, you know, when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, he realizes what's in front of him separation from God. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't just semantics, he wasn't just saying something. God had forsaken him was gone. Why would He do such a thing? Because the Scripture says that Jesus became sin for us. 
He now became sin. He had never committed sin. He was righteous, spotless, Son of God. But now my sin, your sin, the sin of all of mankind was placed upon Him, which is despicable. And so now He was in a fallen state just like you and I. He had taken on sin. He had become sin is what Scripture says. So that we might be in His right standing that He had been before the Lord. And what happened on that cross, Jesus gave up His Spirit and He said, into your hands I commit My Spirit. Jesus died in faith. He died in faith. He said, now it's all up to you. We're going to look at this and we're going to read Scriptures about it, but Jesus did not resurrect Himself. Again and again and again, Scripture tells us the Father resurrected Him. God resurrected Him. God didn't leave Him there. He didn't resurrect Himself. So once He died, once He became sin, and He goes down into the pit for you and I to pay the penalty. What is the penalty of sin? It's hell. The penalty of sin is not physical death. It's separation from God, which is death, real spiritual death. And the penalty for sin needed to be paid. And when you think about it for a moment, why was Jesus in the garden sweating what looked like great drops of blood? Why is He so distressed about what He is facing? It's just physical death. Was He that much of a wimp that He was afraid of physical death? No! There was something much more significant that Jesus was facing for you and I, and that was the torments of hell. Because the penalty for sin needed to be paid and someone needed to do it, and that place is apart from God, and that's a place He hadn't been before apart from God. And so, now you begin to understand His distress. On He's saying, Father, is there any other way to do this? He says, never mind, let's do it your way. Because he knew this was the only way. So let's begin reading here in Acts chapter 2. Now just to catch us up to, to what was, had happened here. Jesus had been crucified. He died. He'd gone to hell. He'd been resurrected. He had presented Himself before the Father in heaven. He came back. He, he addressed the disciples on numerous occasions. And then He ascended into heaven on the cloud. And you can find that in Acts chapter 1. And then on the day of Pentecost, this is a few weeks later, the Holy Spirit is poured out as the church is together and praying. And you know the story of how people from all around came and they're, they're, they're seeing this, these tongues of fire and they're speaking in tongues and they're hearing it in all their separate languages and, and they're going, what is this? They accuse them of being drunk. And Peter's like, no, we're not drunk. We haven't had time for that yet. It's still in the morning. And he says instead, and he then begins to explain, here's what's going on. And so let's just begin reading in verse 17 for that context. He says, this is Peter's message. He said, and it will be in the last days. Now he is quoting out of, uh, from the prophet Joel, out of the book of Joel is where he is quoting this. So, so this prophecy has been hundreds of years old and is now coming to pass. And he says, it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out My Spirit on all My male and female slaves in those days. And they will prophesy. 
I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes, then whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he gives, so that he's done quoting out of Joel, and now he, he begins to explain some things to them. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man accredited to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Though He was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail Him to a cross and kill Him. God raised Him up. See, notice that. It doesn't say Jesus raised Himself. God raised Him up, ending the pains of death. And some people don't like the whole idea that Jesus went to hell. They just can't handle that. But I have a question. How long does the pain of physical death last once you've crossed the threshold of death? There is none. You don't continue to hurt after physical death from the physical death you were experiencing. So what are the pains of death he's talking about? The pains of death were the ongoing torment, the price he was paying for you and I. And it says God raised him up ending those pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, and now he begins to quote David, he said, I saw the Lord ever before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in hell. I mean, how much more plain do we need it? Right? Right here. He is prophesying. David prophesied as though he were speaking on behalf of Jesus, and he's saying this. And when I say that Jesus died in faith, right here's more proof of it. He's saying, My flesh is going to rest because I'm confident. Right? My flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades, in hell, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. He knew it wasn't the end. He knew the character of the Father, that the Father wasn't going to leave him there. Right? He knew that there is in his presence the fullness of joy is coming. And if you read Isaiah 53, it actually says in there how that Jesus was, he saw what was coming, he saw his seed. That was to come, and he was glad. He was glad. He was looking to the future. He was in faith. Verse 29 says, Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in hell, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. See, here we have it again. God did the resurrecting. God has resurrected this Jesus. Another um, interesting thing on this is Jesus experienced what it was to be born again here. 
You know, before this point, He was called the only begotten Son of God. The only Son of God. From this point forward, Jesus is always referred to as the firstborn. The firstborn. Because now there's many born. You and I and all the other believers that have come before us. And so, if you're, if you're taking notes and you want to see other references for why we can say Jesus had to be born again, well, I'll just give you, give you a list of them if you're taking notes. Acts 13.33 Hebrews 2, verse 9 1 Peter 3.18 Revelations 1, 5 and 18 Colossians 1, verse 18 I know I said that real fast, but... You've got to know how to write shorthand around here. You know, Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus experienced death for everyone. Well, did you know not everyone's going to die? Paul said those who are still alive when the Lord returns, they're not going to experience death. They're just going to be changed in, in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. Their bodies are going to go from normal bodies to souped up bodies. So not everyone's going to die. Some of us are still going to remain alive when the Lord returns, whether that's in our time or in some future time. The important part is, is to be ready when He returns. But I say this because when He experienced death for everyone, well, it's not talking just physical death here because not everyone's going to experience physical death. It's talking spiritual death. And this is why Jesus needed to be spiritually made alive. And in those references that I gave you, you can study that out. Because I know we have a house full of Bible scholars. Let's keep reading here. Verse 32, God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since He has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out what both you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but He Himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? And now, reading on from verse 38, this is where you and I, when this question arises, what must we do? We have the answer. I said it, I think, in the very first sermon that, you know, Jesus... He need just like we couldn't take His place on the cross, He can't take your place in the earth. Just like you needed Him on the cross, He needs you on the earth to accomplish what He started. He started it, but now the many little Christs continue it. He did say, you are the light of the world, right? Alright, let's look on here into verse 38. So Peter answers, he says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus the Messiah. And here's what it's for. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. Someone say, it's for me and my children. And for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. As many as the Lord our God will call. Ephesians talks about how that we are predestinated to be with Him. That doesn't mean you'll be with Him. It just means God already chose you to be with Him. It's up to you to answer the call so that you are with Him, right? Well, so it is for all the other mankind on the planet. 
It's up to them to answer the call. And how will they be able to answer that call if we aren't telling them? In fact, go with me over to Romans chapter 10. You know, Romans 10 is that scripture that we use where we lead people through, we could say, the, the declaration that Jesus is their Lord. You know, do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Yes. This is how to become born again, all right? Do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Yes. And is Jesus your Lord? Yes. Well, Scripture says, well, with the heart one believes, with the mouth one confesses, and that results in salvation and being saved. And then it finishes it in verse 13 of Romans 10. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, they never could come to the point of calling on the name of the Lord if they didn't have the revelation of who He was. Right? No one's calling on the name of Spock to be saved. Or Elmo. Right? Because that revelation hasn't been given. Well, they're not going to call on the name of Jesus to be saved if the revelation hasn't been presented to them. See, we have to present the Gospel and let the Lord do the revealing. But you put it out there, and then the results are His. And he says here in verse 14, he asks the question. So he makes this statement in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yay! And then verse 14, he asks a series of questions. He says, how can they call on Him that have not believed in Him? How can they believe without hearing about Him? It's not possible. Right? And he says, how can they hear without a preacher? That means someone to tell it. It doesn't mean someone standing in the pulpit. Someone to declare it. Someone to proclaim it. That's where you and I come in. All of us are called to proclaim the good news. We're not all called to stand in a pulpit or in the fivefold ministry and, and be a preacher in that sense. Some of you are. But all of us are called to proclaim the good news. And then we know what comes next is if they receive and, and revelation comes, well, now comes discipleship and everything that we've been hearing about in the evening sessions. So someone say, I am a minister. Of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, we read these verses earlier, but in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verses 18 and 19, it says God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, if I give Josh the ministry of finance for the United States, we all know that he is now responsible for the financial and finances of the United States of America. Well, if the Lord says to you, I'm going to give to you the ministry of reconciliation, well, all right, so now where, where does the buck stop? With us, that's right. It's been given unto us, this ministry. And then it goes on in verse 19 and he says it again. He doubles down and he says he has committed the message, the word of reconciliation to us. Not the word of your without hope. The word of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God, he says. He said, I plead on Christ's behalf. See, he, he's recognizing I am a mouthpiece for my Lord. I am the hands of my Lord. I am the feet of my Lord. And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the Gospel, the good news. Let's go over to Revelations again. Chapter 21. No, let's not. Let's go to John 3. John 3, and we're going to look at verse 16 through 18. 
Here in John 3.16, most of us could probably quote this, although maybe we remember it in different versions, translations. Reading out of the Holman, it says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. We have Scripture that tells us it is it is the will of God that how many, how many should perish? <laughs> See, that was a trick question. Some are saying all and some none. It's the will of God that none should perish, right? See, it's wise to hear the whole question before we answer. <laughs> it's the will of God that none should perish. So we know that it's not God's will that any person would go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to go there. He wants relationship with them. He wants to be one with them. He wants them to come join Him. That is what His will is. And here it says that God's love for the world was so great that He did something. He gave. Did you know that love or giving is the greatest expression of love? Giving. How did God express His love? He gave. He gave. And what did He give? Well, that which was most valuable to Him. Don't ever doubt your value. You know, the value of of an object is determined by what you pay for it. Right? You buy a new watch, pay $20 for it, that's the value. You pay $100,000 for it, that's the value. Well, same way for you. Your value is determined by the price paid for you. And what was the price paid for you? That which was most valuable to the Father Himself. So don't ever let the enemy argue you out of your worth before the Lord. Alright, verse 17. So the, the whole point here was so that people would not perish but have eternal life. So that people would not go to an eternal hell, but rather would have eternal life. And verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world. See, if God just was looking to send people to hell like a lot of people think He is, then it would read differently. It would say God sent His Son to send people to hell where they deserve to be. Right? But it doesn't read that way. He didn't want Him to go there. He sends His Son into the world that He might condemn the world. I mean, that He might... I read that real wrong now. Let's just start over. (laughs) 17, for God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So the goal is saved. The goal is rescued. The goal is salvation and everything that comes with it. The whole nine yards. In verse 18, anyone who believes in Him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. See, this is that by default state that we've been talking about. By default, 7.8 million people born into the planet today are bound for hell unless they receive revelation of the good news. If they hear and believe. And he goes on and says, because he has not believed in the name... Those that are condemned are condemned because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16 say this. Jesus had, he had, uh, this was after his resurrection, and he comes back to the disciples, and he, he just got done kind of giving them the what for, chiding them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, he calls it. And because, see, they had people come and tell them that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and they didn't believe it. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, you can't hardly blame them, right? We shouldn't be too hard on them. But then Jesus shows up in the room. 
says, come on guys. I sent her to tell you and you didn't believe. And so, he, he kind of scolds them a little bit. And then in verse 15, he, he gives what we call the Great Commission. He said to them, go into all the world. Now, that means we have a lot more flags to put up on this wall, these walls, right? And a, and a flag up on the wall shouldn't mean a one-time visit. It should mean an ongoing effort there. Amen. A lasting work. Salt and light. So he says here, he says, go into all the world and preach. Again, this means to proclaim, to tell it. Don't, don't think someone's standing behind a pulpit. Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The, the Passion Translation says it this way, he said to them as... I like this. Listen. As you go, see, assuming you're going to do what you were created to do, as you go, as you go into all the world, preach openly the wonderful news of the Gospel to the entire human race. Preach openly the wonderful news. It is a wonderful news. Now let's go over to Revelations 21. And we're going to close there. I haven't even gotten close to all of my time, but Revelations chapter 21, and let's read in verse 1. So we had read the previous verses yesterday about how death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire, and that's the second death, and anyone not found in the... The book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then he says this in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with men. And He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Did you know Jesus described in John 17 verse 3 what eternal life is? And eternal life is not simply living for without end. It, eternal life, He described it this way. He said eternal life is to know the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is the relationship we have with Him. Living forever is a side benefit. It just comes out of that relationship. And so, being with Him. See, eternal. That's, that's the eternal life. God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will exist no longer. Man. Right? That, this, this is, these are shouting verses. It says, grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. I will give to the thirsty from the spring of living water as a gift. And the victor will inherit all these things. And I will be His God, and He will be My Son. Jesus promised, He assured the disciples before they left. He said, look, He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
He didn't say, I'm going to just go do nothing. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. That means He has been preparing a place for you and I. He has been preparing a place for the lost person out on the street. He's been preparing a place for everyone you meet. Are they going to go to that place? Are we going to be content to just be quiet, to not reach out, to not ask them, to not put ourselves out on that risky place? to present truth and love and Gospel to them. And I don't mean by, by just preaching at them. But follow that prompting on the inside. The Spirit of God as He moves on you to what to say, how to say, the questions to ask. You know, Scripture says if you open your mouth, He'll fill it. We, we always want to have the whole enchilada before we deliver it, right? No, just open your mouth. Maybe you get one word. Open your mouth. And He'll step right into that void and fill it and empower you. And then, here comes the supernatural result, the revelation to that person. And maybe they don't accept Jesus right now, but maybe they will tomorrow. Maybe it was just a seed you planted that's going to sprout. But let's let those results up to the Lord. Alright, let's pray. Father, I thank You that You are so faithful and good and that You didn't just assign us a lot in hell and, and leave us and desert us, but Father, that You rescued us from a certain horrible death. Father, that You made available to us fellowship with You, life with You, that we can be in Your presence even now, Lord. And I thank You for this. Father, I ask that You would impress upon each one here with Your love for mankind, Your how You see them. Lord, give us eyes to see as You see. Give us ears to hear as You hear. And Father, give us the ability to respond as what You want us to respond. And I thank You for it in Jesus' name. And amen. Praise the Lord. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. Very sobering. That, uh, that rich man, he's still there. Hallelujah. I had a... Uh, a vision I want to share with you as a young minister. Don't talk a lot about it. think it was a gift from God, but I want to inspire you because He wants to use you. Did you know there's a soul winner's crown? You ever thought about that? Terry and I had a... Our first car was a Toyota. We We were young and stupid. We just... Went in and bought this Toyota right out, drove it right out of the display. And uh, that's when Toyotas were still new. And uh, didn't have anybody to fix it when it broke down. We finally found a guy that knew how to fix Toyotas. And uh, he fixed it a couple times. And it's nice when, you know, because I couldn't find anybody else to fix it. And then I found out. He got cancer and was going to die. I said, can't have that. <laughs> so we went, I went to his house and of course he wasn't doing work anymore. And I just walked in the house, sat with him. First time I visited him, uh, he had TV on and it was up real loud. And he was all in a blanket on his couch and he'd come home to die. 
So I talked to him. He wouldn't even listen to me. I think he just stared at the TV the whole time, and it was louder than me. So after a while, I said goodbye. It kept bothering me, though. So I went back a couple of days later and just walked in. The second time I went in, it was a little bit bolder. You know how you are when you're in somebody's house? Well, this is the second time I just walked in, sat a little bit closer to him, started talking to him, and the TV's real loud, so I got up and turned it off. And... uh shared Jesus with him and oh he went to bawling and squalling about how he knew you couldn't get saved on your deathbed somewhere in the Bible he read that you can't get saved on your deathbed leave me alone well I couldn't get any very far with him went back the third time walked in just turned it off went and sat down next to him same old stuff well you can't get saved on your deathbed found out why he had a grudge against God was uh, they used to go to a church, him and his first wife, and the preacher ran off with his wife. Now I understood why God wouldn't leave me alone about him. And uh, you know how many of you know the body of Christ made a lot of mistakes, you know, but the love of Jesus is still the love of Jesus. So I, I, when I, that just broke my heart, so I started sharing with him, and he got off onto that, well, you can't get saved when you're on your deathbed. And I said, baloney. And I said, Fran, listen, I bring my car here, and I don't know cars. It's not my business. It's your business. I said, come on, how many times I brought my car here, and you tell me what's wrong? And I said, okay, let's pay this, because that's what you say it is, and that's your job, because it's not my job, and I trust you. I said, so, so just right now, would you shut up? Because this is my job, and you don't know what you're talking about. And you better trust me, because it doesn't say that in the Bible, and we don't have time to mess around. And he broke down and started crying and led him to Jesus. Now, I wanted to see him receive his healing. We didn't really have time. It was just a few days, and he was in heaven and not hell. But uh, So we ended up performing his funeral. I've never had anything like this ever happen since, but funeral was over. I was out in some field, and I was making my way down to the car where I'd parked it along the road quite a ways away and just started to get into the car and uh, Jesus was standing in front of me. It's like I was in the spirit. He picked up a jewel and he put it in a crown. And I knew it was, it was for Fran. But then what happened next as Jesus just turned and took one step, and there was this long line of people, and they all had a jewel in their hand. There's a soul winner's crowd. How many of you want to be a soul winner? Let's stand and worship the Lord. We're going to pe keep people out of hell. Lift your hands and ask God to use you as a soul winner. Ask you to plunder hell. Ought not be anyone go to hell that could come across your path. Lord, bring them to us. Bring us to them, Lord. Give us eyes to see when we're in the busy highways of life and we're not, we're not looking at that which is right in front of us. Give us eyes to see. There's so many who haven't heard. I know, Lord, I know there's so many nations, there's so many villages, there's so many tribes, and there's so many tongues. But, Lord, I also know in my own city, in my own country, there's so many here who are, who are Lord, they're as heathen as anyone overseas. 
There's so many here who have not heard the good news. They don't know who Jesus is. Lord, I'm asking right now that you'd bring us to them. I thank you and I honor you for it because I know you'll do it. I know you'll do it. And Lord, right now we as believers covenant that when that moment comes, no, we won't falter. We won't step back. And in fact, we'll go back if we need to. And we'll remind ourselves, no, no, I prayed. That's what I prayed about. Maybe that's the one. And we're going to snatch them out of hell, Father. And I bless you for it in Jesus' name. If you can agree with me, shout amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for that sombering message to remind us of the realities of the realm of the Spirit and eternity. Eternity. Charles Spurgeon said a few good things in his life. One of the things he said I always admired was, you don't have a right to preach about hell if you can do it without tears. And uh, now we've got a heart of compassion. Amen.